If neuroinflammation, brain health, mental health are your thing, today on the Low Tox Life podcast, I have Brendan Vermeer helping us out. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. His wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 277. As I said, I have the wonderful Brendan Vermeer on the show today and I absolutely love this conversation. Every now and then you get a real big picture thinker who wants to go every which way around the topic sideways, uh, talking about, you know, fixing the big problems of the earth as well as practical advice around the topic that we're there to discuss. And today is one of those conversations that I know you guys love those sorts of conversations as much as I do. So I know you're going to enjoy the show. Brendan is a health professional based over in America. He's a mental and metabolic health scientist and researcher, functional medicine writer, speaker, board certified holistic health practitioner, a master nutrition coach, master personal trainer, sports performance coach, uh, very passionate about the integration between movement and overall uh, health of the body and mind and uh, has an epic body of work in terms of how he supports practitioners in working on mental health and neuroinflammation uh, right through to everyday people, through webinars, through fantastic Instagram lives, much of it free. He's a really good egg, as we say in Australia, good human. Uh, So we're going to hook into that conversation in just a little minute. But first, I want to thank our major sponsor for the year, Oz Climate, uh, incredible dehumidifiers and air purifiers. Uh, you've heard me bang on about the usefulness and critical nature of these tools in our modern day environment. And that goes for regional living just as much as city. You could be near farms that are using agricultural chemicals nearby and need air purification. You could be in a beautiful, spacious uh, house that's off the ground, but living somewhere really humid uh, or with a lot of rain. Unfortunately, we've gotten to know that all too well on the East Coast in Australia right now. And you might benefit from preventative health for your home through dehumidifiers. Uh, So whether you need a dehumidifier or an air purifier, I guarantee you will love the Oz Climate Range. Uh, Low Tox Life is your code for 10% off all year round. And another offer I have for you this month, Aussies, is Walida. They are back uh, supporting the show and supporting you with your low-tox swaps, or maybe it's just a seasonal stock up of a few of your favorite products. You've heard me rabbit on for hours in the past about how wonderful this brand is, their commitment to quality sourcing uh, they actually have the UEBT certification, which is a guarantee of biodiversity preservation during the cultivation, the harvesting, the processing of the raw material plants that they use. Uh, they are incredible at um, working to support local communities around the world 
and make them more economically stable through the work they do with partner farms all around the world. And I just love them. So I want to share something very cool that they're doing. Uh, They have an initiative at the moment for the month of April. It is called Save Earth's skin. Now, what is Earth's skin? Well, just like we have skin as the largest organ in our body, the Earth's skin is soil and they are campaigning to raise awareness for the importance of soil health. Uh, And I've actually got a biodynamic farmer on the show in a couple of weeks uh, talking to us about the intricacies of that because I think eaters don't realize just how important soil is. And so every skin food product that you buy in the month of April and May, $2 from every one of those skin foods is going to go to one of my favorite charities that I also support with a monthly donation, Carbon 8. Uh, that's C-A-R-B-O-N 8. Uh, and if you want to check them out, I'll pop all the details in the show notes. Um, so what the aim is of Carbon 8 is to help Aussie farmers, I'm a bit tongue twisted today, transition to regenerative agriculture and support them to rebuild the carbon, which is the organic matter in their soil from 1% where we're currently at to 8%. We want Aussie farmers to become carbon sequestering machines. It'll be an amazing way for us to make a contribution, a real contribution to uh, our disastrous current emissions trends and help us put some of that carbon back in the soil. So skin food, $2 from each one for April and May is going to Carbon 8 to help them do that incredible work of education and support for Aussie farmers. So get amongst it. Very exciting. Now your code for the whole month is Walida April, and you actually have uh, 20% off all Walida products, walida.com.au, from the 1st of April right through to the 7th of May. It obviously excludes gift vouchers, gift packs, and stuff that's already on sale, but everything else is fair game. And if you pop a skin food in your order this month, then you're doing that great work towards helping carbonate as well. That's all I have to say about our wonderful sponsors. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show and helping us bring this to you every week. And now pour yourself a cup of tea or take yourself on a beautiful nature walk We're talking mental health and neuroinflammation with the wonderful Brendan Vermeer. Enjoy. Hello, Brendan. How are you? I'm doing great, Alex. How are you doing? I'm so great. I'm very excited to have you here. Uh, Often a lot of people are like, wow, the subjects you cover are so eclectic, you know, and I I think honestly, because so many people come to looking after themselves better and the planet better through a personal health challenge. And if we can sort out more personal health challenges, more chronic illness, then people have more brain space to do great things for their community and their planet, which right now, if there's so many people in this stress, fight or flight mode, like how am I going to get through this day, let alone this year, they're not thinking, I'm going to go join a community garden. They're not thinking, you know, I'm going to look at how I can fix the water systems on my farm. They're thinking, oh my gosh, am I going to die tomorrow? Like there's too many people in this state And that's why I'm so passionate about both because I see them as inextricably linked and I love the work you're doing. Your your want is to change the way the world views mental health. So that's like a teeny tiny little part-time job there for you, Brendan, Uh, (laughs) with what you do. Um, I want to first ask you, what 
isn't working in the main when it comes to mental health, uh, and I will probably extend that to chronic illness because, again, they're one and the same, um, and why are you interested on a personal level? What, what's it about you that got you here? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, and I'm really excited for this conversation. I love the way that you opens that because I think all of us that are in the holistic health uh, or just health space in general, I think all of our hearts are really in the same place, right? Like we want to see collective healing. We want to see humanity advance and kind of transcend some of our very human struggles. And, you know, maybe we approach it from different angles and kind of different narratives, but at the end of the day, the core message is is really the same, right? You know, I think the antidote to polarity is unity. The antidote to 100%. You know, stress and hatred and all of that is going to be is is love. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think love really, as cheesy as maybe it sounds, like love really is the ultimate healing energy. And the more that we can collectively cultivate and co-create more of a loving world, right? And so it's how, how do we go about that? And as you said, you know, changing the way that the world views mental health is uh, it keeps me busy and it keeps me up at night and gets me out of bed in the morning. So the reason why I've kind of niched down a little bit with with mental health, I have a background in fitness and nutrition and really started my career as a trainer and nutritionist. And hey, you know, it amazes me how in the functional medicine space, I think fitness and nutrition are grossly underutilized, I think, in not to critique my own industry, but maybe to point out how we as a industry can do better. Uh, I still think it's a little bit too allopathic, a little bit too like pill for the ill, like run lab tests. Here's the, the silver bullet protocol or the biohack. And of course, consumers are very addicted to instant gratification and quick fixes. So it's like, mm, and we've got, stuff. we're, we're addicted to crisis care, right? As well. Mm. Yeah. We're, we're addicted to being reactive rather than proactive. And this is where. You know, I really believe the greatest treatment is prevention and the greatest medicine is to teach people how not to need it, right? And we can really do that if we focus on a more holistic approach with looking at our environment, both the literal and emotional environment that you're alluding to, as well as looking at our day-to-day -day lifestyle behaviors, right? Because you can't supplement your way out of a stressful, toxic environment. You can't mm. medicate or supplement your way out of poor lifestyle decisions, so we really have to take that more holistic uh, approach and maybe use some of that root cause ideology just to bring more objectivity to it, uh, bring a little bit more evidence-based approaches to it. But with mental health, I struggled with mental health growing up. Uh, probably was struggling with depression as a teenager. But as a teenager, you have no you know, conception of what depression is. So yeah, and time, we all feel like we're the only person in the universe when we're a teenager. Oh, totally. Right. So you're completely well, alone well, and you think, okay. I'm this special human that this is the only person this could, like, this horrible feeling could be happening to. Look at everybody else having a great time in life. It's one of the most vulnerable alone phases of the human experience, I think, because of that loss of connectivity in that age group. So I completely understand why so many teenagers go through what you've you're talking about now. Absolutely. I, I think that really is kind of a huge part of the, the human condition is we think our struggles are just so unique to us when in reality, they're, they're really not. Most people are going to struggle with these different aspects of humanity throughout, you know, their, their life path. But uh, you know, these days we see the mental health statistics just skyrocketing, whether we're looking at 
you know, psychiatric drug fills, or we're looking at mental health disorder diagnoses, or even all-cause mortality. You know, we see at least in America, speaking as an American, you know, suicide is the tenth leading cause of death. Uh, for all ages and the second leading cause of death for ages 10 to 34 and fourth for like 34 to 55 or something like that. So we're seeing suicide, we're seeing mental illness just continue to climb. And there's, you know, a huge conversation that I'm sure will kind of tease apart a little bit in regards to like, why is that? And where are we falling short with our conventional healthcare model towards psychiatry and, and mental health? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so Obviously, this is a huge issue. What are some of the things at heart, at the heart of the the mental health presentations we're seeing today? Uh, what are some of the things at the heart of these horrific statistics when it comes to suicide in young people? Well, there's a there's a lot of layers there, and you know, before even going into like tangible, more root cause or metabolic illness mechanisms, I think there's like a a bigger overarching. Uh, sort of theme that almost has to be acknowledged, which is if you look at sort of the rise of mental illness and what we, which we, we, we create these words and we assign value to the words and the labels of mentally ill and what qualifies that, what does that look like? What does that behave like? Right. And create these diagnostic criteria. It's a lot of monkey mind systemization to try to characterize this phenomena. And my point with that is like, you know, you think back a uh, hundred years ago, which was the era of the Great Depression. Um, I think we live in a world where because of modernization and technology, like we're all more comfortable. And mm-hmm. than ever I was literally just thinking about this last night. We've eliminated barrier to entry on so many things. We've eliminated resistance on so many things. Dinner, Five minutes down the road, it'll be on my doorstep. I don't even have to think about cooking. I don't have to lift a finger, chop a onion, nothing. And you know, if that's one tiny example, you don't have to clean your clothes anymore. You don't, and and yet we're busier than ever before. And I honestly think we're just busy with the wrong stuff <laughs> because we're not building resistance into the human experience to the degree in which it fills us with a sense of purpose and achievement when we hit these stress points and overcome them in little tiny forms. And when you do that, you become more resilient, which contributes to even a better neurotransmitter profile if we were to get technical. It's it's like these days, this kind of chronic psychological warfare that we wage against one another and, and induce upon ourselves, right? Where you know, I think the struggle for survival is an innate part of the human experience. And when you look at the way that humans live just within the past 50 years with modern technology versus like how much more arduous and difficult and strenuous life was as a human for every previous generation for hundreds of thousands of years. And it's like, as an organism, as a species, when there's this more dire struggle for survival, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves and feeling sad and apathetic and anhedonia and lack of pleasure. Uh, I think those are very like modern luxuries that we call symptoms that we call illness to some degree. So I think there is something to be said about that of we used to live in nature, we used to struggle for survival, and we lived with the earth part of it. You know, we slept in the dirt, we drank from the creeks and whatnot. 
versus now, you know, how do most people spend their days typing away, watching Netflix when they're not typing away, working virtually isolated, disconnected from nature, disconnected from society, disconnected from ourselves. So I think there's that overarching theme that kind of has to be acknowledged before then we can even really start getting into the you know, more kind of mechanistic of physiologically what's going wrong with us. Wow. I just, I just came up with a little line in my head as sometimes happens when I'm talking to a great guest who articulates things so well. It's like, if I don't have to struggle to survive, I somehow end up struggling to live. Ooh. Huh? Ooh. Oh, <laughs> that was just like, I just now. was having goosebumps. I'm like, please don't forget what you've just arrived at. Oh man. Yeah, right. Cool. That uh-huh. was really, really good. That's yeah. what came to me as you were saying that. It's like, ah, that resistance, that like, where is this next meal coming from? And every piece of my intelligence and innate and, and instinct intelligence uh, is going to be needed to feed my family. That's gone. And so is the purpose of our organism some in some part gone as well? And yeah. how do we find it again? Well, there's a lot to be said about kind of the like dominance and corruption of the human ego in this modern modernized society right where i have my own like theory of what the ego is uh, you know obviously psychology has kind of their perspective but the way that i look at the human ego is really as like this innate mechanism of the human organism that drives us to pursue continuity and really if you think about it like it makes a lot of sense where if some sort of organism life form didn't have this sort of like hardwire desire to consume and proliferate and continue and survive if there's not that mechanism of self-interest you know the bacteria the mammal the lizard the human they're not going to do what it takes to survive and they're going to go extinct. They're going to die. Their, their gene pool isn't going to carry on. So that's kind of how I look at that human ego. It's that mechanism of self-interest that keeps us, it keeps us going. Like it's never enough. We always have to look out for anything that's going to threaten our ability to continue. We have to hoard the resources and fight off and whatever. And so you take that mechanism and you take it out of a natural survival of the fittest Darwinistic model and you put that into this metaverse where everything is provided to you and convenient and you don't have to hunt and gather, you don't have to fight or flight, you're just in your own little petri dish making up these narratives, right, of what is threatening to you. That person that is trolling you on the internet is a threat or, right, so we kind of make up these these perceived threats just because we don't have anything else for our ego to really be doing. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, when we put it like that, it's, it's a shocker, (laughs) as you would say, Um, it's not good. And so, but we need to really get um, comfortable with this reality to break from this reality. And it may, as you were talking, then I was thinking about uh, Dr. Gabriel Lyon's work on teaching us about how important the muscle is. And I almost feel like, wow, weight training is actually just this incredible way of bringing that natural desire for um, pushing past resistances and getting stronger back into our everyday. I know that's a simplistic example, but it seems like these sorts of things being brought back in can really, and, and we know that they improve the mental health picture as well. 
Oh, absolutely. It's cool where, you know, with the work that I do, I mean, I'm really known for being the guy that has all the technical mechanistic stuff, you know, pretty figured out, but you have to bring the human component to it. Because if you're just talking about cellular physiology and biochemistry, you kind of lose sight of like, but why do our tissues work that way? What's the evolutionary purpose of that, right? Why does it make sense that, you know, because sure, you can look at the research to see like, oh, having more lean mass creates this neurochemical profile and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you look at it as like, well, no, the human organism, it's it's designed to, you know, pursue that resilience to build itself. Like we need those input signals. You know, our, it's funny how like the very first thing you learn as a personal trainer, which most of my colleagues in the functional space are not fitness people. And that's where I, I love Dr. Lyon because she is so much of an advocate of, you know, fitness and muscle as medicine. And the thing is like, Day, day one of PT school, you know, you learn the specific adaptation to impose demand, but it's more from like a muscular physiology perspective of, well, if I put, you know, mechanical tension on my bicep, you know, it's going to stimulate those, those cells to adapt to that specific, you know, impose demand and, and grow stronger and more resilient. But the entire body, every tissue, every cell in the body behaves with that same principle, right? This is where when it comes to mental health and neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, like why do they have geriatric patients with progressed neurodegeneration do physical therapy and puzzles? If you don't give your brain tissue those neurons, you're not giving it that specific adaptation imposed demand to, you know, give it the stimuli to develop resilience. Like it's just going to degenerate and waste away, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And so actually, I know we call dementia, for example, type 3 diabetes, but in part, is it actually also a um, a path of least resistance? Like, oh, you didn't need it, so we're going to just start killing it off. Yeah, neurodegeneration is one of my big areas of focus, and it is very multifaceted. Um, I think the type 3 diabetes like yes and no. Um, yes, from the perspective of like, we know that hyperglycemia, insulin resistance, type two diabetes can promote neurodegeneration. Um, and we know that neurons become insulin resistant in Alzheimer's. That's kind of part of the the characteristic at a cellular level. But I, I'm a little bit, you know, kind of more of that mindset that you just said of like, well, if you don't use it, you lose it. But also there's this chronic neuroinflammation that's really driving that neurodegeneration. And from like a simplified perspective, you know, any tissue, it's either going to be, you know, anabolic or or catabolic, right? It's either growing and proliferating or it's kind of degenerating and withering, just like, you know, your muscles or anything else, right? So it very much is that way. And neuroinflammation, which is, you know, I think, a lot of people in the world are kind of struggling with this sort of brain on fire neuroinflammatory phenomena. And, you know, the brain is just cooking up. And that's why, you know, Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death for Americans right now. Yeah. And our health picture is exactly the same in Australia. It's actually America, Australia, UK, interchangeable these days. It's all, we're all struggling with the same things. Uh, whack folks really got it wrong. <laughs> um, so, Okay, so neuroinflammation, it's come up. Let's go there because uh, there is a lot to talk about in this space. Um, what 
can, what are we feeling? What are we noticing in ourselves when we might go, aha, this is neuroinflammation. What's happening? Yeah. So a lot of people really kind of resonate with the, the brain on fire analogy, right? You know, I think a lot of people like, yeah, it feels like my brain's on fire. Like I feel really anxious. I feel, you know, I can't sleep. I'm wired, but tired, right? There, there's all of these, uh, kind of symptomology, symptom clusters that people report. And this is where like, you know, the more old school and outdated sort of theory of mental illness was based around the monoamine theory, which focused on neurotransmitter imbalances, right? And I think most people are familiar with that of like, oh, yeah, my brain chemicals are imbalanced. That's why I take the SSRI or the benzo or whatever it is that, you know, modulates the activity of the neurotransmitters themselves. But really, even from like a big pharma perspective or a clinical research perspective, that theory is now being kind of um, overruled by more of the neurotrophin and neuroinflammatory theories, which is more focusing on, well, actually, the neurotransmitter imbalances are actually a little bit more downstream from neuroinflammation going on. And, you know, I can map out all the technical science with that. But ultimately, it's funny how Nobody argues with like the idea that chronic inflammation drives chronic disease. And when you say that, you know, chronic neuroinflammation drives mental illness and neurodegeneration, people freak out. And it's like, why? We're about the same thing. Yeah, here, we guys. are. <laughs> and like, it's, it's so, it seems so, so logical to me that if we play at the space where we're then toggling with the neurotransmitters with various supplements and medications, uh, that doesn't necessarily, it might make us feel a little bit better, or maybe you can concentrate a little bit better. But if there is neuroinflammation, which has caused the, the, the mixer of the neurotransmitters to, to go all over the shop, then we're never really going to get to a solution where we're not reliant on external factors to feel better or just to get by, which is usually more the case. Absolutely. And it's kind of interesting, too, because even some of the neurotransmitter modulating drugs like SSRIs, they they do actually kind of have a bit of an anti neuroinflammatory effect in the brain, right? So it is kind of interesting where, you know, if you address the neuroinflammation, maybe the brain chemicals kind of fix themselves, but you can also improve the neuroinflammatory status and neurotrophin signaling by modifying the neurotransmitters themselves directly. But, you know, this is where people get a little bit, you know, confused and caught up and like, well, I don't know that I believe it, but here's the thing. Big Pharma already knows. Like it's, it's the research that Big Pharma is funding that actually is why we know a lot of this stuff. So I always say this because I think it's just monumentally important. And I guess I just need to keep saying it till it kind of catches on. But right now, there's a drug that's in phase two clinical trials, and the drug works by blocking a pro-inflammatory cytokine called interleukin-6, and they're studying and planning on using this drug for treatment-resistant depression. So the idea being, okay, you know, somebody's depressed, we you know, diagnose them with major depressive disorder, so here's your SSRIs, which have not very good efficacy long-term, right? And the stern black box warnings because of all the undesirable side effects. So then it's like, well, if they're not responsive to that first-line treatment, 
Well, now we'll have this new drug and its mechanism is by blocking inflammation, by blocking inflammatory signals, because we know those inflammatory signals cause a lot of neuroinflammation and leaky brain and neurotransmitter imbalances. But the problem, and it's a monoclonal antibody for the record, which obviously that's a big subject these days with what's going on, you know, designer antibody. But the problem with that type of drug is it suppresses immunity and it increases your risk of infection. So what I'm trying to bring to light is, hey, big pharma is getting ready to release this drug and they're going to make billions off of it. And it works by blocking inflammation, but it increases your risk of infection. So how are we going to combat an infectious disease crisis and a mental health crisis using an immunosuppressive drug? And shouldn't we instead be asking, why is inflammation elevated? Like, how can we naturally bring down inflammation so that way we're not just relying Unfor on the drug? <laughs> Unfortunately, that can't be productized. Yeah. Uh, right. There's not <laughs> yeah. a lot of money to be made in naturally. No, but, you know, it then brings the philosophical question of the place this world finds itself in, which is we've built an entire world of uh, systems around GDP theory, gross domestic product, and uh, this concept of eternal growth. And so literally every company in the world right now, save maybe a few social enterprises uh, by comparison, are designed to and have a desire to continue to grow. They have a need to continue to grow because then it impacts people's superannuation funds, retirement funds, 401ks, et cetera. If they don't grow, then, you know, the economy crumbles. And so I, I'm not saying I'm okay with uh, then this, like we have to be able to productize everything, but I am acknowledging at the same time that we're kind of stuck uh, in a system of perpetual growth that then these things end up happening where we produce medications because we actually need to grow rather than because we're smart people and we're trying to get to the bottom of a problem and fix it. Absolutely. And, yeah, and this it's where, really tricky. Well, but at the same time, like the market goes where the consumers go, right? It so, does. Yeah. yeah. I think capitalism is kind of a double-edged sword. And I think what we're experiencing right now is kind of the dark side of capitalism when unconscious consumerism has gone too far and we're essentially practicing self-destructive behaviors and then medicating it away and suppressing it away. And so I think we're kind of in this crisis moment with that that sort of snuck up on us over the past, you know, 30, 40, 50 years with the rise of processed food and big pharma, right? It's a relatively young crisis, right? We didn't have the chronic disease crisis 100 years ago. So it's happened very fast. And we're kind of just now like, oh my gosh, like everybody's obese, everybody's diabetic, everybody has neurodegeneration, everybody has cancer. I was just looking at the CDC data the other day because they released their data from 2020 Heart disease was number one, as always. Cancer was number two, as always. COVID was number three, which I think is kind of noteworthy, considering that was the only thing we heard about. But heart disease actually went up by a statistically significant margin from previous years. And, you know, I think right now we're kind of in this early collective awakening where people are like, poo-pooing on big pharma and it's like well if you don't want to be like a consumer of big pharma like you have to make the choice as a consumer to do something different and choose something different so now we have this exploding market for you know supplements and holistic all the things so 
at the end of the day, I think the consumers have to educate and make different choices. And then boom, now we have all these new industries that, hey, the big the big players are just going to buy those up so they can continue their growth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And so with uh, fixing the neuroinflammation, what are some of the big factors that you see time and again? It's like, oh, I'm going to ask you a series of questions and we're going to see why this is happening. Absolutely. So with neuroinflammation, I think all too often people are trying to find like one specific root cause to sort of blame all their problems on. And in reality, there's a lot of just foundational things that have to be kind of checked first. So I always like to start with the environmental conversation, right? Where what's going on with your environment, both like literal and, and psycho-emotional, right? So if like you're living in a moldy house uh, and you're being poisoned by mold all day, every day, like you might want to do something about that. Or you live right by a 5G tower and you're getting this, you know, EMF radiation that's driving oxidative stress and inflammation, like there's a proximity issue or toxic relationships and stressful, you know, work life, whatever it is, right? So I always like to start with, you know, the environment that the organism is in, like if your goldfish is unhealthy, you're not going to blame the goldfish, you're going to look at the bowl that it's hanging out in and living in first. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, then then once, you know, you kind of do the environmental piece, you start looking at those lifestyle choices and, and behaviors, the hydration, the nutrition, the sleep hygiene, the exercise, the time in nature, so on and so forth, you know, because everybody just they want that protocol, like what pill, what protocol? And it's like, well, we have to be asking, like, why? Why is this really going on? So this is where I don't think it's any mystery, but you know, metabolic illness is the, the primary, you know, root cause of mental health disorders these days. There's so many mechanistic linkages there. But when you look at 88% of Americans are metabolically ill and 70% are overweight or obese and 43% are diabetic, 24% have a fatty liver. It's like, how would mental health be if we worked on all of that? Right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so, In terms of testing, I know there are just so many tests we can do to really figure things out if if we want to nut out how we're going to best heal from uh, neuroinflammation. Uh, You've even created your own panel because you didn't see what you wanted out there in a specific way. Um, Feel free to talk about that and, and also a few other tests that you recommend when people are getting started, when they're having conversations with their practitioners Uh, I think a lot of people feel scared to ask for certain tests, even if their doctor hasn't recommended it. But I know and I firmly believe you can find a health professional who will be willing to listen to you. Just keep shopping around. They work for you. (laughs) I think we forget that sometimes. You want someone who's on your team, not who's your boss when uh, you try and build that healing dynamic. Um, And then, of course, there are some people who have maybe been trying things for years, Brendan, and they've got no cash left and they're really budget strapped. I know that's definitely happened to me um, because no one was talking about mold when I was trying to figure out what was wrong with us. Um, And I spent a lot of money trying to figure it out. So, you know, on a spectrum, what are some of the cheap things we can do? But what are some of the pull out all stops tests we can ask for? Yeah, you know, that's a huge kind of area of passion for me because I always say functional medicine isn't very functional if nobody can afford it. Exactly. Yeah, it's a privileged medicine right now. 
it is. Mm. You know, accessibility is poor. Uh, the economic barrier side of it is is really not good, and honestly, overall efficacy is is not great because, you know, whereas conventional medicine is this very standardized major system with rules and rules and rules and regulations, functional medicine is not an established thing. There's no doctor of functional medicine that that credential doesn't exist, right? It's a paradigm. It's a movement. I'm very well established in the industry, so I know how it works. And it's like, it's an entrepreneurial Wild West space where like anything goes. And it gets really hard for consumers to figure out, well, who can actually help me with my issues? You go to 10 different self-proclaimed functional medicine providers and you get diagnosed with 10 different pseudo-diagnoses that are not real diagnoses and you get told you have 10 different root causes and you get pulled down these root cause rabbit holes and you're burning through cash as you do all the tests, all the protocols, and then you're like still not really getting better. That's like the average experience, which breaks my heart because I think that means that we need to do a lot better. And so like with testing, it's a little bit tricky because on the one hand, I, I'm pretty candid of, well, it's data. And data doesn't do the work for you. Data doesn't get you results. Like data is data and not all data is created equal, right? So a lot of these functional tests are not really clinically validated yet. You know, they haven't really been proven to mean much of anything that's clinically relevant. Just because we can measure something doesn't mean it's clinically significant, relevant, or helpful, right? Like you can measure a lot of things in your stool or your hair or your urine or even your blood. But do we have the research to really know why that data is valuable for your health goals? Mm, right. Mm -hmm. So it was because of all that, uh, I was getting kind of frustrated because, you know, as I was doing all this testing, I, I was seeing like what was working, what was not working, what felt like a good investment of time, money, energy, and what felt like a waste. So finally, I just created my own test that I call the mental map. And it's primarily a blood test. There's one urine marker. Um, and MAP stands for microglial activation profile, which I just mentioned because microglial cells are the immune cells of the brain that regulate neuroinflammation. Um, but microglial activation profile does isn't very marketable. It's not sexy. Yeah. The mental math. <laughs> mental math. I mean, is I think gray. it's sexy, but <laughs> you're part of a very small exclusive club. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's on your panel? Are we allowed to take a look oh, under absolutely. the hood? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm pretty transparent with it because, you know, I, I didn't create or discover any new biomarkers. I took a bunch of biomarkers that already exist that are well established in the literature as being significant for mental health disorders. I'm like, let's put all of these together into a proprietary panel. So that way we can actually assess some of these major things that we know, like, hey, if this marker is high. No wonder like you're depressed or anxious or whatever the case is. So like some of the markers people would recognize like C-reactive protein, right? Everybody's heard of C-reactive protein. It's the most widely studied, popular inflammatory marker known to man. And we actually see through the literature like CRP can drive leaky brain. It's produced by microglial cells. It triggers neuroinflammation. It's a product of IL-6. So 
you know, it's, it's a very well-studied kind of core biomarker. That's one that people would recognize or homocysteine would be another one that a lot of people would probably recognize. And conventional medicine looks at homocysteine as more of a cardiovascular risk marker. Functionally, we look at more as a oxidative stress, inflammatory, methylation-related marker. Um, but it's been really well studied for a lot of different mental health disorders. And then there's some more exotic markers that a lot of people probably haven't heard of, things like neoterin or myeloproxtase and MMP9. But I also assess a lot of core nutrient values, such as vitamin D, which we know that low vitamin D is pretty common with mental health disorders, or zinc and copper and magnesium and iron, some of these core minerals that are directly involved in some of our neurotransmitter pathways. So it's a pretty well-rounded panel. So we can look at, is there immune activation? Is there inflammation? Is there oxidative stress or methylation imbalances? Are there nutrient deficiencies? So it's kind of giving this like broad picture of a lot of different pathways and mechanisms that when disrupted, you know, very much can drive excitotoxicity and, and neuroinflammation in the brain. Mm. Imagine if we all started there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not hard. And most of those aren't even that expensive to order. No. Yeah. Some of them are pretty cheap, you know. Um, and, you know, some of those you can talk to your doctor, ask for, right? Like CRP, that's pretty standard, homocysteine, vitamin D. You know, some of the more exotic ones, they'd probably look at you cross-eyed. But, um, you know, it, the, these blood markers are really widely accessible, which makes it relatively easy. And anybody around the world can probably find a blood draw center and, and get some of that um, data. Yeah, absolutely. And so once you have this data, um, I'm interested to know how much of a role you feel epigenetics plays here, you know, coming back to the environment in terms of what we then do with that data? So my big thing, um, I think when it comes to any sort of healing journey, especially these days, because, you know, healing is kind of being this sensationalized, like trademark marketing. Yeah. It's productized again. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like we're productizing self-healing and healing. And what does that even mean? And how do you, how do you know when your healing journey is over? How do you know when you're healed? <laughs> it's, it's a horribly subjective and nuanced thing, right? And so I think part of what I'm really passionate about with the lab testing is let's bring some objectivity to what is otherwise a subjective, just roller coaster, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if all you're doing is tracking symptoms of like, well, but I'm taking the supplements and I worked out for a week, like, why don't I feel different? Why don't I look different? And it's like, what got me into lab testing early in my career as a trainer and nutrition coach? Cool. So what's your goal? I want to lose weight. Okay. How do you want to measure success along this journey? I'll weigh myself on the scale. Okay. Maybe not like the best way to measure progress. So like, why don't we use body fat percentage? Why don't we use volume of oxygen consumed? Why don't we use some blood work? Because I guarantee you that change is going to happen internally before externally. Your internal physiology and biochemistry and biomarkers are probably going to change before the number on the scale or before how you feel. Right. Mm -hmm. So my whole thing is like, if we have these really sensitive biomarkers that we can track, with mental map and other lab testing, it gives us some objectivity to see is what we're doing working? Because 
there's so many options of what you could do. Like go do ayahuasca in the rainforest. Great. Let me know how it goes. Like go do EMDR, craniosacral or vagal toning or meditation or cold plunging or go do all the different diets. I think it's so overwhelming of like, where do I start? How do I start improving my overall health? And if we don't have sensitive data to show, are we moving the needle in the right direction? We don't know what's working and we just kind of get lost, you know, along the way. Mm, absolutely. And I think it also, the, all the shiny bells and whistles can stop us from remembering what the really important things are. Is your home healthy? Are you getting enough sleep? Uh, is your life stressing you out beyond anything and uh, you're constantly in a stressed out mode? Like these really get lost in the shiny bells and whistles of the hot new course or the great new biohack, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of, from my perspective, I sort of observe there's almost like two different camps that people kind of fall into where when they're starting to embark on their healing, self-healing journey, whatever they call it, they either kind of like dive head first into more the psycho-emotional, esoteric, quantum, spiritual side of it. You know, they're doing all the Reiki and all the meditation and journaling and vagal toning and polyvagal, whatever. They're, they're kind of doing all that stuff. Like, or, and, and they might not really be doing like the fitness, the nutrition, the, the, you know, root cause medicine, or they kind of do the other way around where they go diving down the rabbit hole. Well, which one of the root causes is my root cause that if I just fix that one thing, everything else in my life improves. And it's like a spiritual bypassing, right? And it's like, well, we have to do both. So anytime I'm consulting with a client, I literally will sit down and like, Great. So why don't we make a list of what are your psycho-emotional healing opportunities and what are we going to do about that? And what are your physiological? Because I I think what makes mental health so hard is it's kind of up to each and every one of us to sort of define, like, how do I define mental health? How do I how do I know if I am mentally healthy? Is it when my biomarkers all look great? Is it when I just feel really happy every day? Does that mean if there's ever a day that I don't feel happy, there's something wrong with me? Right. Mm -hmm. So important to do that work to paint the picture for yourself about where you want to be. Yeah. Well, if you don't have something that you're trying to move towards, you're just going to stay where you are. Right. So you have to, you have to envision to manifest and something to move towards. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of like coaching that whether it's self coaching or working with some sort of professional, there's a lot of coaching that's in, involved with this. And I, I see people kind of get too caught up on the one thing mm. and thinking that'll be the fix all. But it's like, what's your core? Why? Like, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And why? Like, what yeah. do you want your life to look like? And how do you yeah. how do you measure fulfillment and success? I love uh, when I was interviewing Dr. Terry Walls a couple of years ago, she said, you just got to ask yourself, what do you want your health for? And it's such, it's like a question that so many people who are literally caught up in their neuroinflammatory state, you forget to ask yourself these questions because you can't see beyond your nose. And yet forcing yourself to will actually give you a path worth carving out in the first place. Oh, absolutely. Back in uh, more like my PT nutrition coaching days, you know, I always did like the five why exercise, right? Like, okay, why are you here? Oh, I want to lose weight. Why do you want to lose weight? 
Uh, I want my clothes to fit better. Why do you want your clothes to fit better? Well, then I'll feel better about myself. Why do you want to feel better about yourself? Right. And, you know, you just kind of keep, keep digging until you get to that core why. The juicy. And, you know, yeah. You know, and, you know, it brings out a lot of emotion that's kind of been repressed and suppressed where, oh, well, you know, I want to get fit so I can keep up with my grandkids and I can stay alive to see them graduate high school. And it's like, oh, all right. Now, now we're on to something. Now we're actually tapping into some substance of the soul that makes it all worth it. Mm, for sure. Um, now, often a lot of people who are on their self-healing journey, whether they reach out to a practitioner to work personally with them or not, you can end up on quite a few protocols in terms of taking different supplements and um, things that you have to do or you're working on. Uh, how do we, in a neuroinflamed state, feel excited to do? Like, where does the is it about connecting to that? What do we want our health for? Do you think is that really one of the key drivers of what helps us be motivated at our least in our least motivated state? I mean, I've had several times now that really inflamed brain on fire, and it's kind of hard to to feel excited about anything. I think one of the only things that I would ever feel motivated to do at my absolute worst was the supplement regime because I could just wake up. I could do it and then I just go sit in the park because then at least I'm outside. I'm not in the moldy apartment where we were trying to figure that out. Um, and then that was all I could manage. Yeah, I think this is why I'm so passionate about protocols and supplements. You know, I, I, I try to be fair and put everything in perspective of like, okay, well, you can't, you know, supplement your way out of poor lifestyle decisions, but there's this is what we call intelligent allopathy right like if we can just swallow a pill that does kind of make it all a little bit better so that way you actually have like the clarity or the motivation or the drive to start making the changes right because behavior modification that's its own art it, it takes a long time to establish new behaviors and this is where it gets a little bit more nuanced and why I love teaching people about neuroinflammation, neuroplasticity, because, you know, if, if neuroinflammation is your, your brain burning up, it's like a forest fire and, you know, the whole forest is just burning down. And if neuroplasticity and neurogenesis is the trees and plants are growing and connecting their roots the way that they're all communicating together, the, the forest is thriving. Those are very antagonistic mechanisms, right? And so... If we're trying to learn a new behavior and adopt new day-to-day -day patterns and belief systems and skills and behaviors, that takes a lot of neuroplasticity and neurogenesis to create those neural networks associated with those new belief systems, those new ha habits and behaviors and patterns. So if your brain is on fire, it's quite literally very physiologically difficult to have the motivation and drive in neuroplastic mechanisms to even create new habits and behavior. Yeah, exactly. Right? Rocking so a hard place. This, yeah, it's this mm. vicious cycle, which is why, you know, I'm not at all against pharmaceuticals or supplement protocols, because actually when people are a little bit more compromised, no, that's going to be the easiest thing you can mm. do. Swallowing some pills, whether it's, you know, whether it's ketamine or Zola oh, or curcumin, yeah. curcumin <laughs> or creatine mm. or, you know, whatever it is, like at least with a well-designed pharmaceutical or and or supplement protocol, we're working on very specific mechanisms to kind of give you that edge. So that way, then we can actually 
start moving the needle on the habits, behaviors, the belief systems, which is a long-term game, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas pharmaceuticals and supplements, that's a that's a short-term regimen. Yeah, totally. I always say you got to work on the save the day to get onto your day-to-day. You know, it, like to save yeah. the day is the most important because that's going to give you the belief that it's worth yeah. going onto the day-to-day in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. And so you, I, I saw actually last week, you published some of your favorite supplements, especially when it comes to mold. And I know, uh, unfortunately, thanks to my journey, at least the, the grace of my journey is that I've been able to help so many people in my own community uh, realize why they have felt awful for however long they've felt um, and start working on it. So I, I will ask you about some of your favorite mold supplements because there were a couple that I hadn't seen there in anyone else's literature or um, protocol sharing before. Um, the bovine immunoglobulin um, I'm a huge fan. I was so excited to see that there. But with the the serum bovine immunoglobulins, I mean, that it's one of my, <laughs> all my friends know, like I'm obsessed with those things because they literally just extract antibodies, immunoglobulins out of cow blood, pack it into a capsule. There you go. So like, you know, a lot of people have probably either heard of or used colostrum, which is kind of the, the classic, you know, um, supplement that it, the reason why colostrum is so therapeutic is primarily because of all the immunoglobulins that are in colostrum. That's kind of the primary ingredient that has its therapeutic benefit. But we've kind of taken that technology a step further where now we can just extract the immunoglobulins in a concentrated form and pack it into a capsule. So it's literally just antibodies, IgM, IgG, you know, packed into a capsule. And, you know, what what do antibodies do? There, you know, there's all the rage about, you know, COVID antibodies these days. And it's like, well, the glycoproteins that bind on to pathogens and toxins and antigens to kind of bog them down, weigh them down, clump them down, and then it induces phagocytosis as white blood cells come and gobble it up and clean up the scene. So, you know, it's an immune support supplement, but the especially for mold, you know, they bind on to mycotoxins and help with mycotoxin, you know, detoxification. So a lot of people are really obsessed with more like adsorbent binders like charcoal or bentonite mm-hmm. or zeolite. And those kind of act more as like a a magnet that sort of like pulls the toxins along. If I took like a bunch of iron filings and pulled them along with a magnet, that's kind of more so how that works versus the immunoglobulins actually binding to and getting gobbled up by white blood cells. So I think it's, and they're so well tolerated. It's been clinically studied for IBS, IBD, all sorts of things. But um, yeah, it's other than people that have like a true beef allergy, it's amazingly well tolerated, very effective. So, mm. and, and so a lot of people who end up with mold issues are people who can't make the antibodies or don't recognize that, that mold as, uh, as, um, a, um, a bad thing in our bodies. Right. And so that is what, it's not just sucking it up and, sh- and pooping it out. It's actually starting to support what the body might not naturally have in that person to do the cleanup job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, mold toxins and mold is such a huge subject, but you know, mold toxins are highly immunosuppressive and that creates a lot of issues because then, I mean, we, you know, big pharma or conventional healthcare, they use 
mycotoxins, specifically mycophenolic acid, as an immunosuppressive drug. Mm. And statin medications, which are the number one medication in the world, statins are made from mold toxins because it inhibits the liver from being able to produce cholesterol. So it's really like ironic in a disturbing way how conventional healthcare doesn't acknowledge, you know, the danger of mold and mold exposure and mold illness. But even the literature says that it's it's suggested that maybe 50% of all illness is driven by poor indoor air quality. Uh, and then we use these things pharmaceutically, but those mold toxins really uh, shut down the immune system and can actually kind of at times mask inflammation because it's just suppressing the immune system so much. So you see a lot of these people, they get just recurrent infections over and over because their immune system is just offline. Mm. And something that was really interesting for me when I moved out of, um, we've unfortunately had three water damage buildings in the last five years. And the last one that I moved out of, uh, my doctor just did a routine, super thorough annual panel and um, ANA was on there. And it was out of mold that for the first time ever, I had a positive ANA test. It was a very low, like speckled 80, whatever it's called, but um, it's almost like my immune system's come back online and now it's just kind of a little bit haywire while it settles down. Almost like when I remember when I quit smoking, I had a similar experience like nearly 20 years ago now um, where the immune system comes back online because this little fake system that you set up, like maybe women taking the contraceptive pill in the past can also identify where your body is finally in a normal state, but it's not used to it. So things go a bit haywire for a bit. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I don't, I've, I don't know that I've ever heard um, an example quite like that, but I definitely think there's um, a lot of mechanistic linkage there. And part of it too is mold and autoimmunity kind of share the same adaptive immune response mm. with this TH17 pathway. So you do see like a lot of um, kind of mold cases that also are autoimmune cases too. So I think that makes a lot of sense. That's definitely a cool thing. Yeah, I know. I, I, I like nerding out. I think now that I'm feeling better as well, yeah. it's easier to nerd out yeah. without stressing out about what it all means. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I find it fascinating. And so what are a couple of your other go-tos for pe- people healing from mold? Um, probiotics are, are really non-negotiable. I, I would argue that mold is primarily a microbiome issue Mm. above all else you know both like the microbiome of the environment the terrain externally but also internally as well because i think mold is kind of getting sensationalized right now and it's like everybody is exposed to mold every day that's part of being human right uh, so it kind of becomes this balance of, well, how much mold exposure, right? Like if you got an entire wall covered in black mold that, that you live in 24 seven, that's a huge amount of exposure. So that's half the equation, but the other half of that equation is how resilient is your body to it? It's all about resilience. Same, same thing with COVID, right? Like you can't escape COVID. You can't escape a circulating virus. You can only build up your immunity and resilience against it. So, you know, I think it's just absolutely important to, you know, really focus on like, what what can I do to build up my metabolic and immune resilience so I'm more tolerant to mold? And, you know, of course, some people are going to be, you know, the canaries, right? Like they're the ones that are genetically weak, 
uh, you know, in these pathways that they are going to be a little bit more susceptible to mold. So I digress, you know, probiotics and supporting the microbiome, supporting a healthy, diverse microbiome is absolutely essential. So probiotics, prebiotics, and, you know, you postbiotics, all the biotics, right? Yeah. And so I, can I ask you there though, a yeah. lot of people feel worse when they take probiotics. So how do we find a probiotic that's like, what do we need to know about our situation to find the right probiotic? I know you're a big fan of the the spore-based probiotics? Why? Yeah, for sure. Well, this is where like a lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll start people with the, the bovine immunoglobulins and the binders and more gentle things, even different nutrients like folate and zinc and, you know, things that are trying to kind of calm down the environment a little bit first before dropping anything that's going to be like antimicrobial in nature, whether that's like a probiotic or some sort of botanical or an antibiotic or antifungal, whatever it is. Um, it's almost like you have to kind of seal off and quarantine the environment, get things under control before you start like dropping bombs is kind of a, a good analogy. And with probiotic strains, I mean, there's so many strains that, you know, are starting to hit the market with varying degrees of efficacy. And I think it's important for people to understand, you know, probiotics don't colonize. They just trans, they're transient. They pass through, they kind of exert their antimicrobial and microbiome modulating effects as they pass through you know, through various mechanisms. But the reason why I'm so big on the spore biotics is because, you know, some bacteria have their, their spore, their endospore, which is basically like the bacteria goes dormant into more of like a, a seed, if you will. And that seed, that spore is temperature resistant, pressure resistant, acidic resistant. You know, I mean, there's fossilized spores that are, you know, millions and millions of years old. But as soon as that seed is in the right environment, it detects that and it'll open up into its bacterial form where it starts exerting its different um, metabolic functions. Whereas like if you go, you know, to the grocery store and buy the probiotic out of the refrigerator and it has like, you know, 50 billion, mm -hmm. you know, colony forming units per capsule, it, it, the probiotic market was becoming this game of who can fit the most CFUs into the <laughs> capsule. More because is not necessarily better. Yeah, mm. it's it's like a nutrition thing, right? Mm. It's kind of like sperm trying to make it to the egg. Like 99.9% .9 of them are going to die off because of the acidic environment. It's just like that when you swallow live probiotics where the majority of that isn't going to survive the acidic stomach acid or the bacteriostatic bile in the mm. top of the small intestine. So the spores have a much higher bioavailability because they're in their dormant spore form until they get down into the intestines and the colon where that's the environment that they say, hey, it's time to open up and, and work my magic. But I think the spores are just really superior from like an efficacy, bioavailability, um, and the what they do exerting, you know, they help heal leaky gut and boost microbiome diversity and short chain fatty acid production, which are all these key components to have a healthy gut, gut lining, so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so when we're talking about prebiotics again sometimes people uh, can feel like that that 
like literally puts a brick in their stomach. I remember I was put on some kind of like fiber, inulin fiber or something. And it was honestly as if someone had put a piece of cement inside my stomach for a week. So is that again, coming back to what you were saying that you start people on the immunoglobulin supplements, the zinc, the folate and start creating a better set of tools in the body for the healing to start beginning before you move on to those? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I try to do as much as I can nutritionally, obviously. Like, I, I love prebiotic supplements and different types of fibers or oligosaccharides and whatnot. They're great. They're clinically studied. But, you know, I think we should mostly be getting fiber from our food and eating plenty of uh, plant foods in general. Like, you don't, you don't get fiber from animal food, right? No. So, yeah. You know, some of these, um, the, the carnivore and keto, that tends to be a really low fiber diet. Back in the day, right, the conventional dietitians like, eat your, you know, honey nut Cheerios to get the fiber to bring down your <laughs> cholesterol and whatnot. <laughs> oh, my like, goodness. Just even hearing that sentence is just right? outrageous. Yeah, it's, it's quite asinine, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it? It just blows my mind. But how many people are really eating enough fiber? And it's like, well, fiber itself binds mycotoxins and all sorts of bad stuff, not just cholesterol, but also mycotoxins. And it's the fiber that really is like the the food, the fuel, the substrate for your microbiome. So, you know, you got to give the the soil of your gut, the uh, garden of life, whatever you want to call the microbiome, you got to give it food in order to grow and, and flourish. So, you know, having a diverse, uh, not plant-based diet, but a diverse array of plant foods in the diet, lots of different colors. And all those polyphenols are mm. really great fuel for the microbiome as well. So, cause I do, I think you take a compromised gut and you just drop like inulin or contact fiber. Or yeah. sodium husk. That doesn't usually go quite as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that sort of speaks to the the idea that when you look at a list of things that we need to bring in, how much of that can be brought in by food should be our first question. Oh, absolutely. Let let thy food be thy medicine, right? Like Yeah, exactly. You know, and kind yeah. of overlook that. And and then diet culture is just kind of spinning out of control right now too, right? Where you have to pick a camp of the keto camp or, you know, paleo, carnivore, intermittent fasting. Oh my gosh. Vegan. Yeah. I'm like how about just starting with eating real food and nothing but real food? Do that for a few years and report yeah. back, you know? Yeah, I know. Pick a camp is like the enemy of of human connection and happiness, honestly, yeah. like across all issues. It's like, no, I pick no camps. Yeah. I yeah. pick good people. I pick good values, having a purpose in life yeah. and diets, politics. For me, it's all the same. Yeah. It's kind of this tribalism thing going on, you know. Yeah, right. I think maybe we should be like on team human. <laughs> team human. I'm with you yeah. for sure. Yeah. Now you mentioned resilience. Yeah. This is a big one because a lot of people can get to a point where they feel better and then boom, they're exposed to the proximity, like close proximity tower or they uh, have a meeting where the office they had to have a meeting in was moldy. Uh, the aircon was dirty or whatever, or maybe they have one really stressful week and then they can't actually come down from that stress. So the resilience piece is just not there yet. They can't bounce back. What are the like stretch goal things we can do to get to a point where we aren't the canary anymore, where we can bounce back from a, a hustle week in work 
um, or a newborn who had a virus and therefore we had no sleep for four days. And, you know, how do we become the bounce back person again? That's a really great and profound question. It, it kind of touches on like, what does it mean to even be human anymore? Right. Cause mm. you know, that struggle for survival, it's like, how, how do you survive? You practice resilience, right? And I think resilience really is a choice. And it's a choice that we're kind of met with like every moment of every day, every time we run into a, um, a resistance, a, a triggering factor, whether it's, you know, stress at work or home or the mold or picking up COVID. Uh, and, you know, that's where, like we talked about before, I, I think exercise is like the most amazing sort of resilience building kind of metaphor and literal, you know, activity. It, it amazes me just, you know, I, not that I think we should hyper focus on any one type of intervention or medicine, but if I had to pick one form of medicine, I think I'm going to go with movement and, and exercise. I just, I think what it does for the body is so profound, but then, you know, there's that uh, the, coming from a guy that like I used to, you know, kill myself in the gym, right? I, mm. I was that guy that I, you know, I overtrained, I overdid it, like, you know, more is better, keep your nose to the grindstone. <laughs> and I think I, I learned a lot of, you know, toughness, you know, through those early life lessons, I developed a lot of resilience of like, I will outlast everybody, right? <laughs> like, that's great. But you also have to balance that with, you know, the other side, the recovery, right? You know, the yeah. where's workout. the softness, where's the slowness, where's the calm? You know, it's, it's the yin yang, mm. right? Like mm. you, the masculine, feminine, the light, the dark, the hard, the soft, like it, it has to be balanced. So this is kind of where like HRV and, and allostasis kind of comes to the conversation where, okay, to give your body the specific adaptation to develop resilience, maybe you go do that workout, but then to actually heal, recover, which is where the resilience gets formed in response to that stimuli. Well, that's where we have to learn how to regulate our nervous system, right? Where we, we get triggered, somebody insults us or whatever the triggering event is, you know, and our sympathetic nervous system just shot up, our HRV just went haywire. But how do we bring that back? And that's where like, I think breath work, you know, meditation, breath work, to learn how to like, it's kind of funny how you look at, you know, how, how people deal with kids when kids get flared up. Hey, why don't we breathe a little bit? Like, let's, you know, cool down. So uh, I think it's important for adults to remember how, how do we regulate our emotions? How do we regulate our nervous system? How do we not just punish, 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 do more? Like, no, how about maybe less is more, maybe more recovery, maybe more breath, maybe more grounding, right? Mm. Yeah. And just building that. So, you know, we t I talked about the SOS versus save the day versus day to day and just making sure that our day to day is solid. And that's when we're feeling good. So now is the time to build the habits in that create the yin yang and help us rebound. Whereas if we go, oh, I'm feeling good now. So I can just chalk my life full of all the things because finally I'm better. I can do all the things again. Oh my gosh. Well, that is a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I really, these days, I, a lot of people are into gadgets and, you know, technology and, and tracking lots of data all the time, whether it's 
you know, heart rate variability or glucose monitors or aura rings or root bands or, and I, I'm not really one of those people. I don't like tracking data. It drives me crazy, you know, other than like running my lab testing every three to six months. Like I don't, I, I like intuition, right? And I think intuition is one of the most powerful aspects of, of humans. It's a gift. It's a skill. It's, it's a mechanism. I think we've gotten really disconnected from, but, you know, intuitive eating, intuitive fasting, intuitive exercising, where, you know, do I have sort of like an exercise regimen that, you know, I have an idea of like what workout I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Yeah. But like, if I wake up and I'm like, you know what, like, I'm not feeling it, mm. you know, I'm, I'm not going to force it, but you know, then there's a balance of like, are you being intuitive? Are you, are you yeah. Being- you checking yourself um, <laughs> or are you making excuses? Yeah. yeah you know, I think we can only know our own truth in that though. Like if we're, so many people have forgotten how to be honest with ourselves, like to have a really honest conversation. It's like, actually, yeah, yesterday was really busy and I played tennis after work. So it makes sense that today I actually just, why don't I just go for a walk? You know, instead of just going, oh, I'm going to eat popcorn, sit on the couch and Netflix binge. Like you could just do the calm version of the good thing that you had planned to do. Yeah, absolutely. I remember back in the day when I was doing more nutritional coaching with clients, I would kind of use both as like training wheels in a sense where I would have them on a like a diet journal that I made. You know, they would track their biofeedback, like their hunger, their energy, their cravings, their mood, motivation, just mm-hmm. on a scale of one to 10 subjectively of like, you know, is your hunger high or low? Is your energy high or low? So on and so forth. But also kind of having them do a little bit of like macro, you know, food logging, food tracking, like with my fitness pal. Because when you start doing both, you start seeing like, all right, so when my macros are approximately this, my hunger and energy and cravings and mood are, are kind of like this. And you start learning how to balance between those two things using those training wheels. So that's where like, you know, tracking your HRV helps you develop more mindfulness and intuition so you get more in tune with your body, then great. But you know, I don't think like food logging or counting macros or, you know, tracking HRV forever is necessarily mm. just like with diabetics with the continuous glucose monitors. Like yeah. you have to learn how to regulate your own blood sugar because it's dysfunctional. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, um, the Oura Ring has been great for just starting to see gains like it's really nice to just I, I'm feeling better am I better um and I remember my HRV was like around 14 to 16 it was terrible and now it's kind of above 30 and most of the times like you know first half of the cycle especially above 40 and that's a huge improvement in just three years and I really like the comfort of knowing it's not just showing up in my heart and my head and I think I'm better but I actually really like that data reassurance and it comes back right to what you're saying about my fitness pal like you don't need to do it forever but while you're trying to get back in touch with yourself and build that really honest conversation about what works for you getting in tune uh, it can be really helpful. Well, it's also like we were talking about earlier with lab testing of bringing some objectivity to it. And, you know, the objectivity, it keeps us honest and it holds us accountable, right? Where, you know, whatever we're doing, whatever lifestyle 
changes or whatever interventions we're doing, like, are they working and can we objectively prove that? Because that's actually not to go on a tangent, but like with the neurolimbic system, our, our reward system of the brain, you, you can kind of like biohack the reward system where the way that the brain is wired, you know, we're, our body is wired to conserve energy and be very energy efficient, right? Because we might need to hoard on to that energy in case there's a famine or, you know, whatever. So our body, our, our brain specifically, it doesn't want to encourage us to do something if we don't get a reward for that effort, right? Mm, yeah. So you kind of think about like the person that maybe they're overweight and they're busting their butt in the gym they're restricting themselves in the kitchen because they're trying to lose weight. They're trying to lose weight. And then they're weighing themselves on the scale every day. And when they see that the number isn't going down, their neurolimbic system is getting the signal that, hey, you're expending <laughs> all this energy in doing all this effort and you're not getting a reward for that effort. So then it literally discourages them at a neurological level from continuing to go to the gym, from continuing to eat clean. So then they fall off the bandwagon and go nuts and they hate themselves for it, thinking it's a character flaw. And it's like, actually, because your neurolimbic system didn't get the reward sensation. So maybe it's not that you're a failure. Maybe we're not using the right data to give that positive mm. reinforcement, right? Yeah. So same idea, whether it's the HRV or, you know, continuous glucose monitors or lab testing or view we have to have more objective ways of proving to our brain that what we're doing is working and we should keep doing it. Yeah. I love that. And it's going to be different for different people. Right. Mm, yeah. Like how do sure. you want to measure, measure success? And, you know, as the coach or practitioner or health professional, we have to make sure that their chosen metric of success is going to be a, you know, accurate, sensitive metric to, to validate their efforts. Mm. And the scales can be such a disappointing one if you're using yeah. only those because the way metabolic health is improved, it's often in plateaus, ups, downs, stages. You could go through two months of losing weight and then for two months you're not going to. Um, yeah. And that probably can be because of a whole bunch of things before the body's then ready to release and reset its weight point again. Um, yeah. And so I think unless you actually have a deep understanding of that physiology, it can be an extremely frustrating metric. Oh, absolutely. I, I always would, you know, use like the blood work as kind of end all be all, but like the VO2 testing, right? You can't, mm. you can't force or fake that. Like if your VO2 goes up or your resting metabolic rate goes up or even, I don't know, how many pushups can you do with good form? Like if your performance going is going up, right? So yeah. There's just so many ways that we can qualify progress. And, and I think that's such a crucial component of um, any sort of, you know, health or fitness journey and, and regimen. I love it. Brendan, you're a wealth of knowledge. I really appreciate your time. Uh, we talked about so many things. I think we did maybe solve some of the world's problems today. Uh, I know people will be inspired by your beautiful, gentle, compassionate approach, as well as being able to bring the technical in at the drop of a hat with your fabulous brain. I want to thank you for joining me on the show. I have a feeling this is the first of a few conversations down the line. Uh, have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you so much, Alex. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social, on Instagram, at Lotox Life, or one word, or my personal Instagram, 
uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Low Talks Life uh, and, of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.